look, here we are in faith and labor. So Evan, Pap, and John Andertrek, faith and labor, our first pilot, uh, our pilot show, excuse me, came about from a conversation we had earlier for uh, uh, Labor Radio Network. And uh, so I'll begin by introducing myself. I'm John Andertrek. I, I turn myself a practicing Catholic, and not to be too glib about it, my wife and I agree on that we're going to be practicing all our life and probably would not get it right. But there we are. And in part, this idea of a faith and labor, talking about the social teachings of the Catholic Church in regards to the work, the workplace, and a huge field there, environment, on and on, is that I came to the point personally that I'm tired of, as I put it, seeding the battlefield to the other side. And uh, I think it's well past time for us to speak our faith openly in public, not as an imposition to others, but to speak what we consider truth and uh, engage in a conversation that way instead of being silent. And my name is Evan Papp, and I'm based outside of Washington, D.C. And I got to meet John through the Labor Radio Podcast Network doing an interview and realized that we both had Midwestern roots and were both raised as Catholics. My mom was an Irish Catholic from Cleveland. My father was a Eastern Hungarian Catholic from Cleveland as well. And they got married and I was raised in a, a Roman Catholic church in Muskegon, Michigan. And I essentially, as I got older into my teenage years, we stopped going to church as frequently, but the you know, the, the, the spirituality and the teachings and the, and the moral teachings and the idea of Jesus Christ and personified as someone as this enlightened person preaching the golden rule has always influenced me. And so during that run up with the Iraq war, instead of going to law school, I really wanted to leave the country. I was really disgusted where we were and ended up going into the Peace Corps and uh, living in Zambia and living in an area with no running water, no electricity, and really seeing poverty that I've never seen before with subsistence farmers. And uh, it, it was very humbling. And obviously, I always had the opportunity to leave whenever, you know, I couldn't take it anymore or after the two years or three years was up because I extended for a third year. And I came back to the U.S. and moved uh, to Washington, D.C. And I got interested in uh, some Dorothy Day house, Dorothy Day Catholic worker in Washington, D.C., and, you know, getting connected a little bit into some of the activism with the Catholic Church that I'd never really experienced before, and also visited the Berrigan House in Baltimore and the, the Berrigan brothers who were a part of a group of Jesuit uh, priests who were involved with burning their draft cards and, and uh, doing swords to plowshare actions in military bases, and so I was very interested in just more of exploring that side of it. And I got involved with international development and I did that for a number of years and also been very interested in labor and activism and started reading Pope Francis in the encyclical Fratelli Tutti. And like John said, I, I also, John, really don't want to cede this ground anymore. I feel that there are these, the, the hypocrites have taken over so much of religion and I feel that there is a place for religion, there is a place for spirituality and morality and Catholic teachings. And I think this Pope Francis presents an opportunity that I've never seen in my lifetime of a very progressive uh, person. And he's really trying to evolve the church to, to really focus on dialogue and promoting inner interchange of, of love and peace. And this Fratelli Tutti, I, I think it's, it's one of the most important documents I've ever read, and it's beautifully written, 
And it, it really, I think, embodies what I think is Jesus Christ's teachings. But there's also a very reactionary element within the Catholic Church that I would also like to explore in this series. And I guess with that, we can go into some definitions for the layman's. I'm pretty much a layman myself, so I'm going to be learning a lot through the series. And that's also what I'm really interested in as well. I think we hear Evan, that's very well put, very impressive. You you live the gospel, the Peace Corps. I'll say it right off, and we could talk about that as we get on to some of the gospel passages. Just kind of a disclaimer, this isn't a comparative religion class. I think I can e safely speak for you, Evan. We come with a respect for other religious religious teachings and, uh, and non-religious, you know. I, I, I try to say that as we talk about human dignity, we're gonna, one would find that in what could be called humanism, uh, in many of the teachings of humanism, that don't accept idea of a greater being or religion or faith uh, or what some would call spir or spirituality even or supernatural, if you want to call it supernatural. So I think that's an interesting caveat, I like to say. The Roman Catholic Church, a few years ago, I read uh, why it's so, it seems so popular in popular culture, because we offer what we consider, what we, we hold as our tradition, which is a pillar of our teachings compared to other sects that define as Christian, is that we don't stick strictly to the gospel, to the Bible. Uh, we accept the uh, Bible to some books, we could argue in that, but some books less than more, but we also accept tradition. And for popular culture, they kind of love our tradition because while we're not doing it for the media, we have these great ceremonies, you know, how often in, in movies do people get married in a Catholic church because it, it it's such a, even at a simple level, it's such a spectacle. To get into some definitions, Evan, one thing that gets thrown around a lot is infallibility. And that's actually a re relatively recent take in the Catholic church, but it's very specific uh, to certain teachings and none of which we're going to be covering under Catholic social teaching directly, the encyclicals and other statements by various leadership of the group in the hierarchy and also in lay, lay teachers. So we're not going to touch into that. Encyclicals, encyclical just meant at one time cycling, that the, the Pope would issue a letter and circulated around the various positions in the church, bishops, archbishops, associated members of different congregations. But that's the origin of the encyclical. It's now considered a teaching document. It does have the status as issued by the Pope, but it's understood that it's being done because it's, it's a grave matter of concern to the church at that time. And so here we're going to be talking about encyclicals that are considered to fall under the, the social doctrine of the teaching of the church or social justice. Fundamentals of the church, though, when it comes to social justice, and I'll quote the, the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, which is a great source. You can find them online. It's a basic moral test. It's how most vulnerable members are faring in society, in a society marred by deep need divisions between rich and poor. Our tradition recalls the story of the Last Judgment. And many people may not understand that reference, but they might understand recognize this when Christ was teaching, and this is in the gospel, Matthew 25, and he was asked about the last judgment, who will, who will gain the afterlife? He spoke of, well, those, the, the God will separate you, and it'll be those who fed me, fed Jesus Christ, when I was hungry, who clothed me when I was naked, who visited me when I was in jail. And the response was, teacher, when did we ever do this for this? And here comes the line I think most people recognize, Evan, is when you ever did this for the least among us, you did this for us. 
And this is a very fundamental uh, premise that we're going to see supporting Catholic social teaching. I, I love this idea of this basic moral test, you know, of how the society is faring. So if you have homelessness rampant in your country, if you have people in poverty, people who are hungry, the morality of your society is failing, essentially. And, and on the, the flip side of this is this concept of eudaimonic legitimacy, where if you are a leader, you gain legitimacy only through the ability to improve the lives of everyone you are leading. And I think right now we are in a very, very challenging time and we need to band together and, and really help all these people who are in need and, and bring this to the center of, of not only our, our spiritual teachings, but our political teachings, our social teachings, our cultural teachings, and, and really focus on the fact that you know, we're, we're morally not doing well based on just the reality of how many people are suffering in society. Absolutely. It is that spiritual or mental or emotional illness that our society propagates. I know we can get into that later as we talk about neoliberal capitalism. We're all just basically functions of the market, you know, the hyper-atomization. So again, the signs are on us. We're, we're, we're ill society. We're, we People despair. I mean, the worst, you know, worse than pessimism, worse even than syndicalism is, would be to me with despair. Work should be the setting for this rich personal growth so that <laughs> labor is not just something to make money on, but it's to actually improve oneself, improve one's community and and really grow and become more conscious and, and more loving where many aspects of life enter into play and in creativity, planning for the future, developing our talents, living out our values and relating to others and giving glory to God. And this is uh, part of the dignity of work and the rights of workers that you can also find on the United States uh, Conference of Catholic Bishops. And so the economy must serve the people, not the other way around. Right. And that's, that's ultimately what we haven't been seeing. And we have an opportunity now, I think. Going back to fundamentals of the Catholic Church is that the Catholic Church recognizes the dignity of all humanity because we accept uh, Jesus Christ as, as God that became man. And we accept the fact that it was not simply by random that it was chosen to be uh, God as man was chosen to be born into a worker's family. If the dignity of work is deep to be protected, then the basic rights of workers must be respected. The right to productive work, to decent and fair wages, to the organization and joining of unions. And then it even says to private property and, and to economic initiative. The, the union and dignity of work side of a lot of the teachings I received as a, a child, I maybe I was deaf to it or maybe I just it, it just never came out. So this is something that I'm really excited to focus on. Right. Go back to some of my background. I grew up in Chicago in the 60s and 70s, very strong union towns with a strong Catholic base. So I grew up in a time when every neighborhood had this Catholic church and a school and all that. And there was, a, there was a big tie between the unions and the church and the city. So again, the dignity of humanity, the dignity of work is fundamental to the church. And everyone knows this line, Cain and Abel. And when God asked Cain, you know, where's Abel? And what was, what was Cain's response? Am I my brother's keeper? Well, you know, the church's answer is yes. We are our brother's keeper. We are our sister's keeper. And even going back to Judeo teachings, the Judeo teaching of in Israel of the Jubilee, where 
every 50 years there was a reset. Uh, land would be redistributed, debts would be forgiven. An amazing thought in a country that claims to be embracing Judeo-Christianity. And the great story of Moses taking the slaves out of Egypt, the greatest slave strike rebellion, I think, right. you know, in the history up to that time. Right. Again, least of the brothers, the Good Samaritan is is another source, I believe. We we seem to be all familiar with the Good Samaritan and you know what you know, love thy neighbor was the Good Samaritan was a parable in uh, response to Christ saying the old law, love thy God, and then the new law he added, love thy neighbor as thyself. And the question was, well, who is thy neighbor? And the Samaritan being the outsider, not a member of the 12 tribes of Israel, the different roles, the bandits. The Catholic Church teaches that we can sin by omission. In the Good Samaritan, it's, it's explicit. There were those who committed the sin, the bandits upon the traveler, and those who committed the sin of omission by walking past him. And Fratelli Tutti spends quite a bit of time setting up the whole parable of the Good Samaritan. And one of the things Pope Francis does in, in this encyclical is to say that in us all is the righteous rabbi, in us all is the thief, in us all is the sick man injured, and in us all is the Good Samaritan that can help. And we need to constantly you know, overcome these tensions and these temptations of saying, I, I don't have time to help this person who's suffering right here, or I'm scared to help this person because I may be, it, it may just be a ploy and they may actually rob me. So I'm, I'm just going to move on ahead and, and act like that person doesn't exist. Yes. But that brings my mind one thought I, I, I read from a homeless person said, it's not just that a person doesn't stop to help me. Because there's always there could be a debate. Should you help them there? You know, do you help them better this way or the other? But they don't see me. They don't see me. We make them invisible. Again, we're talking about encyclicals dealing with what we call the truest teaching on social justice. And one just maybe one more thing to do is that in recent times the church has taken a stand that as a church and a society, we should have a preferential treatment of the poor the least among us, once again. So Evan, with that, uh, again, we're speaking about encyclicals. Should we get into what's considered the first encyclical? Yeah, and if I can uh, set it up, so, and then you can kind of go into more of the substance. Rerum Novarum is Latin for of revolutionary change in the world. And it's an encyclical of Pope Leo VIII, written and signed May 15th, 1891. And the subjects on capital and labor of men and women and addresses the condition of the working classes. And with that, yeah, please, what are some of the highlights that uh, you found as we go through the document? Because you have like, quite a few of them. Well, in the begin with, again, 1891, we, we were seeing the incredible cresting of um, in, uh, industrialization of mankind. It's been going on for quite a while, obviously, perhaps one could argue for two centuries, but we really were seeing it. And with the move for urbanization, people were taking off the land, moving into the cities and the treatment of workers there. And uh, Leo, I believe it was Leo VIII, but Leo issued this encyclical based on his concern of basically losing, you know, again, the church's fundamental task is the soul of man, temporal, as spiritual, but seeing how people were being literally by the millions were being lost to the industrialization of humanity. And uh, he also was responding, and you can see that all through his text, of his concerns, which what he describes as a, a liberal philosophy, liberal politics, 
as well as communism, socialism. And, and that's something we, 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 I don't think we want to avoid. He, he absolutely um, challenges socialism. He, he says his concern there is he looks upon it as uh, an effort to replace the state. And I think that could be discussed. I don't think all forms of socialism do that. But at that time, he felt it was a risk. But he was definitely taking on capitalism at the time and uh, speaking to it very insightfully, not only seeing the problems at that time then, but almost forecasting what we're going to see as time went on. The workers were so downtrodden. One source that you and I have, which whoever listens to this, I would recommend, is the Catholic Labor Network. And in it, they have links to the entire encyclicals and other documents related to the Catholic social teaching. But you're right, 1890. So one can imagine, you know, not that many decades later, was it Upton Sinclair's The Jungle, when you talk about the horrid conditions of the slaughterhouses in Chicago. The excerpt from Catholic Labor Network, Leo was alarmed by the industrialization and laissez-faire economics. Laissez-faire, you know, just letting the, the market do what it can, do what it wants. And the workers were just supposed to be these uh, individual factors of the economy and somehow either make it or break it. And, and you hear echoes of that now even, is that under the byline of, well, people just made bad choices. And the, the church challenges that, it, it, because we, we're not to be isolated like that. We're not to be standalone. Uh, there is moral judgment all through this encyclical. He calls for wages that a frugal and well-behaved wage earner can live a decent life. And he also rejects what I would call employment at will. Leo called out to say that if a worker desperate to provide for themselves and their family has to face unjust, horrific work conditions uh, because the boss holds that power of them, that's a grave injustice. The idea of employment at will, that you have two equal partners, and he's calling that a lie. They're not, it's not equal if the employer has that much power that the worker has to accept these horrific conditions. Leo first quotes Thomas Aquinas in affirming that private property is a fundamental principle of natural law. And then he, he quotes uh, Gregory the Great regarding its proper use. He that hath a talent, let him see that he hide it not. He that hath abundance, let him quicken himself to mercy and generosity. He that hath art and skill, let him do his best to share the use and the utility hereof with his neighbor. The, the idea of private property, even today, I think, with people who are so disgusted with capitalism, I think there are a lot of people who are even moving to this idea of communism and just the expropriation of all private property. We don't have to go down that road. But at, at the same time, I do think that one of the things that Lincoln was trying to do with 40 acres and, and two mules that everyone should be given land to be able to work on. And at the very beginning of the Bible, where in Genesis, where it's like people, if they have land to cultivate, and if everyone can have their, their plot of land to make abundance on. And there's also this other concept of you know, wage slavery and free labor. And free labor is where you actually have your ownership of your own tools, of your own property, that you can then build abundance on and then share that abundance and with the community and continue growing it with your family and others. So it goes against a lot of current thoughts as well as back then. The Roman Catholic Church, with all its flaws, its goal is, through its teachings, is to help form conscience. 
when we look at the encyclical, the Pope does talk about morality. He talks about frugality. I was brought up by frugal parents because they both lived through the Depression. We were taught that to waste food was a sin. It wasn't like a bad thing to do. It was a sin. You know, it was, it, it was that high of a category. So going back again to the teachings of uh, family, uh, perhaps what we would now call gender roles, he spoke specifically about how workers should not be put in an immoral position. And he spoke especially of concern with women, with the Me Too movement. We still can see that where women are subject to workplace conditions. And for every case of the celebrity, we only can guess how many cases of there are with some young woman working at a, a fast food joint or a bar or anywhere else. It's considered the touchstone, the first teaching of Catholic social teaching. He states the following duties bind the wealthy owner and the employer and goes on to say that to misuse men as though they were things in pursuit of gain or to value them solely for their physical powers, that is truly shameful and inhuman. Again, justice demands that in dealing with the working man, religion and the good of his soul must be kept in mind. To defraud any one of wages that are his due is a great crime, which cries to the avenging anger of heaven. I just can't help but think about all these billionaires who leave their employees who are actually creating the value on food stamps, unable to pay for healthcare, unable to send their kids to college and pay for rent. And it goes against the entire moral order of, of the universe. Right. So that's a concise terminology that Leo the 13th is basically calling down the judgment of heaven on these people, as our faith teaches us. It's a grave injustice. It calls for the avenging angel. The, the visuals of that are explicit in a more concrete form is a multi-billion dollar industry of wage theft. Well, there perhaps a fraction of it is unintentional, just mistakes on uh, bookkeeping, but so much of it isn't, where they misclassify workers, they abuse the system, you don't get the overtime that even our, our basic labor laws call for, and that's an injustice. You, you know, time is money, but money is time. The wage you earn represents a finite point, and that's the life, the life you have on earth. We'll look at the laborer as this atomized microcosm, and then also on the macrocosm is taxes, where I've seen some studies that show the amount of international development, because I've spent, you know, a good decade or more in international development, and if corporations just paid their fair taxes, that would cover more than the world spends in international development. So a lot of these corporations are going into these countries and are just eluding them. And they're not even returning the taxes from what they're taking out in natural resources and commodities and in asset stripping, not only the land, but the labor force. A lot of these people are just not paying their taxes and the corporations are not paying their fair share into the system. One other aspect is this idea of uh, usurious dealings and the concept of usury, which is so far away from the public policy schools and economic classes that I've been taking. But usury is essentially where you are gaining more and more money on the interest of your capital. And that used to be banned in much of Christianity. Mm -hmm. and why it's banned, you can say, well, there's a moral incentive, but I, I would say there's also a very pragmatic idea is that the more usurious, the higher the interest rates are, 
the less that can go to your actual people, to the actual reinvestment, to the actual means of production that can actually generate surplus value that can go throughout the system. So you're actually collapsing your system when you have a 30% interest rate for someone who's trying to borrow money to just not completely be kicked out of their home or something like that. And, and ultimately they're gonna be you know, taken to the cleaners for that. It's a milder version of a debtor's prison. You know, we think we're past this, but we aren't. And yeah, you're correct. And I know, I guess I'll sound religiously partisan, but while there were ways around it in Europe, and I don't think it even existed in the Roman Empire, usury or or interest is what we're talking about, and then compound interest. Anyone that buys a home, going through signing a home contract, and you look at that, what you're going to pay on interest. To separate like the concept of debt and usury, right? Because you can have debt at almost 0% interest rate. Mm. And the, the idea of what I've been pushing a lot for is the Federal Reserve should be providing 0% interest rate, not to Wall Street, that then uses it in speculative usurious finance mm-hmm. to actually put it into the productive economy to actually create a real industrial surplus through, through industrial organization, agro-industrial organization. And that surplus then can be used to pay for, make sure everyone has healthcare, everyone has schools, everyone has housing, everyone has social security. And, and, and it's not just a primitive accumulation as uh, Marx would say, that we're not mm-hmm. just going to loot something and, and it's not just gonna be through imperial conquest, but through the organizing of labor and capital, you can actually create a real a surplus but you do need a Federal Reserve, a 0% 100 year loan to be able to develop a train, a maglev system that goes coast to coast that will put 30 million people back to work, so. Right, and here's a quote, the richer class have many ways of shield themselves and stand less in need of help from the state. This is again from Leo XIII's Runum Novellum of Revolutionary Change on the Relationship of Labor and Capital goes on to say, whereas the mass of poor have no resources of their own to fall back upon and must chiefly depend upon the assistance of the state. And it's for that reason that wage earners, since they mostly belong to the mass of the needy, should be especially cared for and protected by the government. Or I think you can hear in that the preferential treatment of the poor. And also, while Leo does still explicitly attack socialism, he's not then rejecting the idea of the need of the civic good and the need of the role of government, which I believe we've been suffering from in this country for decades. And the poster child to me would be Ronald Reagan's, the era of big government is over, the words you don't ever want to hear, I'm from the government, I want to help you, all these glib dog whistles. And on the flip side of it, Bill Clinton's the one that said the era of big government over. And so we've been suffering this for for decades. Again, going back to Leo and this first encyclical of social justice, social teaching, Evan, while he firmly rejects both socialism and unbridled capitalism, he certainly does absolutely declare a need of government. And again, the fundamental, the absolute support of workers to organize, aka unions. What was your experience in unions during the Reagan era? I wasn't into unions, but from a personal standpoint, Reagan was breaking the professional air traffic controllers, PATCO. 
And you had Reagan having the head of the PATCO union let out in manacles like he was like a Hannibal Lecter. And globally, it was open season on organized labor. And globalization, which in some ways is just a backdoor to destroy labor. Yes. <laughs> Race to the bottom. I went to school where in this era of celebrating globalization and looking back at it, it's this poison pill of propaganda that so many people are just now waking up to as there's no more factories and no more labor guarantees. But going back to the, the Rerum Novarum, he, he writes, such unions should be suited to the requirements of, thi of this our age, an age of wider education, of different habits, and of far more numerous requirements in daily life. It's gratifying to know that there are actually in existence not a few associations of this nature consisting either of workmen alone or of workmen and employers together. But it were greatly to be desired that they should become more numerous and more efficient. We've spoken of them more than once, yet it will be well to explain here how notably they are needed to show that they exist of their own right and what should be their organization and their mode of action. And so kind of just in closing, a brother that is helped by his brother is like a strong city. It is this natural impulse which binds men together in civil society. So almost saying that unions are the basis of, of everything that brings us together, the work of, of our brothers and sisters together and helping each other, which is, I think. Absolutely. The Catholic teaching is not only the dignity of all humanity, but of shared humanity. And, and it's very interesting, too, because if you look up the battle for Seattle, when those who came in the streets opposed to the World Trade Organization, it's a great moment we need to rekindle because shoulder to shoulder was the environmental movement and the labor movement. Because unfettered globalization offered no protection for humanity or for the world we live in. I always like to say that coming from Michigan, Detroit was one of the greatest centers of production the world has ever seen. And we did to ourselves what the Nazi government could have only dreamed to do to remove this center of production. And if people said, well, hey, you know, we don't need this many cars, you could have retooled the entire machine tool sector to produce enough turbines for agricultural use in Africa. And you could have exported that to make sure that everyone could grow enough grain and everyone's well fed. And you could have built other machinery that we could have used because there's there's more than enough work to go around. There's there's We need to build more hospitals in this world, more schools, more housing, more research centers, more advanced energy research and development and, and systems. And so and with all these things, it, it's it was a looting operation. And you saying that this parasitical asset stripping, I think that is present day usury on top of the interest rates of, of capital, of, of finance, is also it, the, the usury of the parasitical asset stripping and then, you know, bankrupting what could be a, a repurposed organization to, to do more of God's work. Absolutely. Right. That's a great analogy, a, a great visual again, Evan, that we did to ourselves with our enemy kind done. The asset stripping is parasitical. It's almost like a locust. They come through and strip the leaves and they, and they fly off. We're finished seeding that battlefield. Do you have any closing thoughts on this encyclical? Well, again, it, 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 I urge people to look at it and be open-minded. The goal of the church is to help form each individual conscience because we recognize the dignity of 
of humanity. We recognize Christ in every one of us. It's very striking. He, the Leo speaks of humanity, speaks of injustice, again, speaks of the preferential uh, treatment of the poor. And unions. I mean, the idea. And of unions, yeah. A, having such a prominent place in the. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're going to see that. All, we're going to see that from now on, in all these encyclicals, in all the teachings from the Catholic Bishops Conference, and and certainly with our current Pontiff Francis, it, it's it, it it was not a one off. So, as a part of this series, I think it's important to also focus on current events within the church, mm -hmm. how the church is also responding to the numerous crises we're seeing in the world, and a big part of that is poverty and immiseration. And I think within the Catholic Church, as said before in the opening is I'm perceiving a civil war and I see Pope Francis is promoting dialogue and there's a reactionary element that's promoting confrontation. And so a story that you even mentioned before we started recording and that I also wanted to focus on, so a little bit serendipitous, is this story that was covered on a podcast inside the Vatican on January 27th, 2021. And to read the show notes, last week, the United States' second Catholic president was sworn in. The day was tinged with controversy for some U.S. Catholics, though, when the president of the U.S. Bishops' Conference, Archbishop Jose H. Gomez, issued a statement that was seen by the Vatican as being too confrontational towards the new president. In that statement, Quote, our new president has pledged to pursue certain policies that would advance moral evils and threaten human life and dignity, most seriously in the areas of abortion, contraception, marriage, and gender. Of deep concern is the liberty of the church and the freedom of believers to live according to their conscience. And this is important to realize that the Catholic Conference of, of Bishops in the U.S. never issued anything when Trump was elected. Obama was elected. This is uh, unprecedented. And it goes on to say that there was a rare public rebuke of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops from one of its members, Cardinal uh, Blaise Kupich, joined with an unnamed senior Vatican official in taking issue with a statement released later that day saying, quote, today the United States Ca Conference of Catholic Bishops issued an ill-considered statement on the day of President Biden's inauguration. Quote, aside from the fact that there is seemingly no precedent for doing so, the statement critical of President Biden came as a surprise to many bishops who received it just hours before it was released. And it goes on to conclude, the internal institutional failures involved must be addressed. And I look forward to contributing to all efforts to that end so that inspired by the gospel, we can build up the unity of the church and together take up the work of healing our nation in this moment of crisis. So that's a very powerful public conflict being played out. And I, I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Well, I'm going to begin with something I read when um, Jose Biguerrero, now Francis I, was selected as the pontiff. One of the cardinals told a reporter, we went in with one choice and then felt the hand of the spirit and we came out with another choice. I found that very moving, very striking. I carried that with me. So was Francis picked for these times from a portion of the church that you would think would be uh, 
more mindful of protocol and formality. This was against both the protocol of the, the Catholic Conference. It, 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 that letter, if it was to be generated at all, was not to be generated the way it was without advice uh, and consent of the administrative body of that like executive committee in effect of the conference. And, but it does also go absolutely against, from what you hear, what Pope Francis is looking for. He's, in fact, he's supposed to be, when he talks to what we call the papal nuncios, his representatives in each country, he's telling them, I want candidates for bishops who are bridge builders, who are consensus builders. This is what he wants for our times. And this is what he sees our need for our times. And if you'll, if you'll allow me a little levity, my wife and I were just talking about this specific episode earlier today. And it's like, well, maybe you should do like, like see these? These are the Pope stripes. <laughs> you know, you're the, I'm the Pope, you know? And, you know, if it's good for the goose, it's good for the gander. They're the ones that say we should listen to the Pope when it, it suits their needs. I was, I can't say I was disappointed. I was surprised. I think another point here that has to be noted is in this, in the same episode, Archbishop Gomez is calling for a review that he wants to issue a statement nationwide that President Biden could not receive communion, which, you know, is, it would border on, um, a, a grave error. I mean, it, it almost border on a, a virtual insurrection. And uh, again, at time we don't need this. I can be critical of uh, President Biden, but again, the church calls its role to, to form conscience, not to construct conscience. It, it shows the the fissure, like between these. I mean, it's unprecedented, at, at least in I think recent memory, to have such a public spat. And I, I think we have to be conscious also that within Trump's cabinet, there were some very right-wing Catholics from Newt Gingrich going with his wife to become the ambassador to the Vatican, to the Eric Princes of the world, to the Giuliani's and the Bannons, who also is creating a very right-wing focused educational school right outside Rome to mm -hmm. the Leonard Leos of the Federalist Society, who's a Knights of Malta citizen. Mm -hmm. So there's a Knight of Malta faction, there's an Opus Dei faction, and there's, there's a very reactionary element that has always existed in the Catholic Church. And I, I'm, I'm concerned sometimes for Pope Francis's life even when this type of, this type of conflict is, is so public. And at the same time, it, it beyond all of that too it's like where were they with trump on any of this right right they were quite quiet when it was kids in cages on the border uh right uh, the like the the tax cuts the cutting of health care cutting of social services so in in some ways if, if they were at least consistent maybe i would give them a little more of a pass or at least try to understand them a little more but i think it's just blatant of what this faction represents and i'm really interested in mapping out who are these factions mm -hmm. and better understanding the personalities and and exposing them mm -hmm. for what they are and maybe they shouldn't be in the catholic church maybe they should join um something else going back to francis what i say to people because there will be people say he hasn't gone far enough you know, he's not, he, you know, he's not going to allow the ordination of women. In part, he says that's been settled, but from my understanding, my readings, in large part, because he feels that it would schism the church, we probably lose all of Africa, which is really, that's a case study there. 
the problems in the African church. And he does, he feels that that's his responsibility. He's the vicar week of Christ on earth. He's the steward of the church. And so he has a lot to take in mind. But what I say is judge this man by his enemies. Has he, you're not going to get ordination of women. You're not going to get a lot of things you're hoping to see, even allowing women deacons right now. He put that on hold, which we were hoping we would see. Married priests on and on. But he speaks of love. He just issued a statement the other day saying that Vatican II must be taught as part of the Catholicism of the Catholic Church. And the point of Vatican II is love above all the doctrine, above all the teachings, love. And that obviously flies in the face of these reactionaries. When he, again, judging by image, his first Holy Thursday observance, where the Pope replicates Christ's washing of the disciples' feet. He went to a shelter for homeless adolescents in Rome of all faiths, of all genders, and he got down on his knees and he washed his, their feet. And one of these people from this group, he talked about the ban and all, their comment was, well, what's next year? Dogs? I mean, all you hear is hate. I mean, all you hear is hate and fear. That's what we're seeing here, Evan. Not that we don't have to be concerned about it, but I think that's what we're facing. Barr is another one. Barr completely flew in the face of John Paul. St. John Paul II said, there is no reason in modern world for the death penalty. And Barr just couldn't wait to what seven he, he's a very fundamentalist catholic uh, right right winger reactionary abortion you know what's the path to abortion you know of of respect of humanity again the, the catholic teaching is that life demands respect from 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 conception to death and the right to life movement in the united states is right now very politicized sadly because I think both parties play us like a fiddle on culture wars. and But very focused, the current right to life movement is very focused on supply, cut the abortions off. And uh, groups like New Wave Feminists and others who, are on, who have been on in America, Jesuit Magazine, are speaking of cutting off the demand. Let's look at why people, why women seek an abortion. So again, it, it's, it is a battle. And it, again, I'll just repeat one more time. Judge Francis by those who oppose him. And let's help them out. That's right. Yes, <laughs> yep, that's right. Bring more love into the world and, and expose the people who are using the cloak of God and Jesus while they're spreading hate and fear. Yeah, yeah. Like, like I say, you know, it, uh, my Christ is the Christ of the Good Samaritan. My Christ is the one of the least among us. And uh, my Christ is the one that w pulled off his belt and wailed on them bankers. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. Great ending. We got a... Yeah. Uh, Expose the bankers that are amongst us that are right, right, right. Chase the money changers from the temple. So very good. So I'm glad you brought that up. A great resources we mentioned. Kind of maybe a, a little last line. America Magazine. You could get their email for free. You get an online subscription. I think that's a great resource. Catholic Labor Network does incredible work. You can find uh, all the encyclicals in their full text on uh, their drop-down box libraries as well as a synopsis of all of them. You mentioned, I, I'm very impressed, very proud to know someone that was involved with the worker movement, Dorothy Day. We're all out there. It, 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 it's all out there. For every bad pope, there were a thousand good unnamed saints, a million good unnamed saints. So faith and labor. Episode one. Episode one. Okay. Thank you, Evan. Thank you so much.